Many moons ago, when the world was young and heroes walked the earth, there was born the History Podcast. And in this world, there was the Beeb. There was Lars Brownworth and a bloke called Mike Duncan, and we heard Mike and knew he was good. And so was spawned a new generation, wherein I was inspired by Robin Pearson, who picked up the mantle of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. Robin, I'm glad to say, is still going strong, is still producing magnificent history and entertainment, and here is a message from him. Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. It seems like you enjoy your history recounted to you by an erudite, funny Englishman. Well, I am also an Englishman. And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This year came dreadful forewarnings over the land of the Northumbrians, terrifying the people most woefully. These were immense sheets of light rushing through the air and whirlwinds and fiery dragons flying across the firmament. These tremendous tokens were soon followed by a great famine. Not long after, on the sixth day before the Ides of January in the same year, the harrowing inroads of heathen men made lamentable havoc in the Church of God in Holy Island by rapine and slaughter. Welcome to the History of England, Episode 5, The Noble Wolf. Last time then we had an introduction to the Vikings, wherein we resolutely refused to address the sensitive side of their nature. Today we're going to do the same or at least in terms of ignoring the Vikings' sensitive side. We're going to go back into our story of England, and this time we're going to stitch the Vikings into it. Which means, as I say, we need to go back a bit. Hence the portentous quote read in dire tones. This was the entry in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle for 793, and it summons up some of the terror and confusion felt by the Anglo-Saxons and the inexplicability of what had happened. After all, this was Holy Island, a place dedicated to God, and yet God had allowed it to be trampled and destroyed what had happened. Actually, there had been a hint of what was coming a little earlier, in 789, when a king's reeve in Dorset had noticed three ships pulling up on the beach. He assumed these ships had come to trade, so he went down to tell them where they should pay their dues to his lord, nice and fine and dandy, sweet and pleasant. And their answer was the same as it would be for the next hundred years. An axe in his face. But Lindisfarne, Lindisfarne was different. Lindisfarne was Holy Island, a place of sanctity. 
In Charlemagne's court worked a man called Alcuin of York. I think I have mentioned him before. His horror and his outrage have survived in his words. The pagans have contaminated God's shrines and spilled the blood of saints in the passage round the altar. They have laid waste the house of our consolation. And in the temple of God, they have trampled underneath the bodies of the saints like shit in the streets. From the perspective of 300 years later, another chronicler from the church called Simeon of Durham neatly summarises why the Vikings came in the early years and is able to show a little more analysis, if no less horror. They miserably ravaged and pillaged everything. They trod the holy things under their polluted feet. They dug down the altars and plundered all the treasures of the church. Some of the brethren they slew. Some they carried off with them in chains. They came for treasure. They came to capture people who they would then sell off as slaves. And they did not care about messing up the church while they were there. The next year, 794, it was the turn of the monastery at Jarrow. But this time, the English apparently managed to fight back and kill some of them. And bad weather then delivered more Vikings by wrecking some of the Viking ships, and the Vikings themselves were slaughtered on the shore by the English. The following year, it was the turn of Iona, the holy island on the west coast of Scotland, and this time there was no reprieve. Iona would be consistently targeted. The Vikings would come again in 806. However, despite the horror and shock of these early attacks, which in these cases, by the way, were Norwegian rather than Danish, there is then a gap of 40 years before the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle records another attack. The general picture is of a series of raids which shocked Anglo-Saxon England, but which did not threaten its existence. The Anglo-Saxon Chronicle record is in all probability incomplete. The chroniclers were of course recording this from the future, from the time of Alfred. But nonetheless, their records would have concentrated more on the most shocking ecclesiastical targets rather than secular ones. In addition, they were very much focused on Wessex. So, for example, they failed to record that in 844 the king of Northumbria, Raidwolf, was killed with one of his aldermen by a Viking army. It's also possible that the Viking threat did have an impact on the creation of new monasteries. As we said a couple of episodes ago, there seems to be a change in the pattern, with much smaller monasteries and religious communities being set up than those traditional big foundations. Now, this seems to be largely because these communities sought to avoid the lay domination that had become so common. But, flight from the large, vulnerable coastal communities the Vikings could so easily target could also have made a contribution. The same applies to the economic change we talked about. The decline of the Emporia seems to predate the Viking onslaught, but would almost certainly have been accelerated by it. And certainly, it wouldn't do to minimise the impact. There is, for example, an interesting conference at Kingston to the southwest of London in 838, between Egbert and his son Ethelwolf on the one hand, and Cholnoth, the Archbishop of Canterbury, on the other. This conference of Kingston sought to cover a few things. Firstly, to make sure that the new hegemony of the West Saxons did not run into the same kind of conflict with Kent that had plagued their relationship with Mercia. So an agreement was reached. 
under which the Archbishop of Canterbury agreed to hand over all the Minsterlands of Kent to the Crown. The grant was subject to maintaining a perpetual peace between the two parties. In return, Egbert agreed to restore some estates that he'd seized when first he'd taken control of Kent. Now, this grant of all the Minsterlands is a really significant one. We spoke a while ago about the worrying amount of land that had been gifted to the church, which of course withdrew revenues from the crown, whether directly or through taxes on the king's lay subjects. The size of these land grants is probably one reason why secular lords then continued to insist on exercising control and influence over their local church and monastery, much to the annoyance of the church. The Anglo-Saxons hadn't really grasped the concept of giving something away. It's a concept I find difficult too. When I say significant, it's been calculated that the Minster land in Kent amounted to one quarter of the total land in Kent. So you can see the scale of the issue. Now, it's unlikely to be quite this extent elsewhere, given that Kent was the first kingdom to adopt Christianity and was home to the Archbishop. But nonetheless, one quarter, that's a big percentage taken out of the king's taxable wealth. The conference was thus a success and confirmed that Kent was much more willingly stitched into Wessex than it had ever been with Mercia, probably helped by Egbert's connection with the previous Kentish dynasty. At the conference also, it's probable that Egbert's oldest son, Ethelwolf, was consecrated king by the Archbishop of Canterbury. This is unusual, but we saw Offer do the same with his son to secure the succession and try to avoid that vicious power struggle which so often accompanied the death of an Anglo-Saxon king. Egbert was clearly keen to avoid that unpleasant period when every subject saw the chance to use the death of a king to make a bid for freedom. It also reflected Carolingian practice, just a few months before, the Holy Roman Emperor Louis, son of Charlemagne, had done exactly the same thing for his son Charles. Now, if you were looking for prestige in 9th century Europe, that was where it lay, in the vast Carolingian Holy Roman Empire. As far as early medieval man was concerned, the Western Roman Empire had never really come to an end. It had just changed its nature and rulers. But anyway, we weren't supposed to be talking about any of that. I was talking about the fact that while the Vikings might not yet be threatening the existence of the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms, we shouldn't minimise their impact. The point I was going to make about the Conference of Kingston was that the major reason Cholnoth granted that land to the king, as well as making peace, was because he recognised the scale of the Viking problem, and that it was a problem which the church could not deal without the king's help. The grant was very probably to help the king meet that threat. Just to reinforce the point, let us quote Alcuin of York again. Ever before has such a terror appeared in Britain as we have now suffered from a pagan race. Nor was it thought that such an inroad from the sea could be made. Alcuin is conveniently forgetting his very own pagan ancestors, as the Welsh and Cornish might have reminded him. But the point is that the Vikings have stripped away the sense of security from Anglo-Saxon England if an institution as venerable and therefore presumably as beloved of God as Lindisfarne could be desecrated what hope for the rest. Actually, the biggest raid in these early years as far as Wessex was concerned was again very probably from Norwegians based in Ireland rather than from the Danes. 
and it came in 8.36 to 8.38 in the southwest. The first incursion appears to have been a raid against which Egbert raised an army, only to be given a bloody nose by the Vikings forced to retreat and to watch the Vikings gather their loot at their leisure. And this probably encouraged the Vikings that the kings of Wessex were weak and vulnerable and worth another go. Over the next two years, there then appears to have been some collusion with the British kingdom of Dumnonia in the far southwest of England, since despite their best efforts, the West Saxons had failed to finish that kingdom off. Because in 838, the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle records that, quote, a great ship army of Vikings came to Cornwall and united with the Cornish. But this time, at the Battle of Hingston Down, Egbert was victorious. Hingston Down seems to have meant the end of Cornish independence, as well as the defeat of the Viking raid. Although to begin with, Wessex followed the Mercian practice of allowing the local royal family to remain in place as sub-kings. And so in effect, Cornwall joined Kent, Sussex and Essex as sub-kings subject to Wessex. While we're on the subject, the last recorded king of Cornwall was to be a man called Dungarth and the manner of his death suggests that the desire for independence had burned on. An Irish chronicle records that Alfred had him drowned in the river Foyi in retribution for his support for an invading force of Vikings in 875. In 839, Egbert died, after a reign that had transformed the political map of Anglo-Saxon England, and not the least of his achievements was a smooth transition of power to his son Aethelwulf partly the result of that consecration by the Archbishop of Canterbury, partly because Egbert had embedded himself so well, partly because of Egbert's greater acceptance by the Kentish folk. We don't know how old Aethelwulf was when he came to the throne, but we know he'd been married for some time because his eldest son, Ethelstan, was in a position to be given a kingdom to rule. Osbur, Aethelwulf's wife, gets a mention as his biography of Alfred because we're fast approaching England's greatest monarch, Alfred. And Osbur was, in fact, Alfred's mother. Now, you may have picked up on that rather bold statement and be gasping in surprise, possibly even horror, but let me say this. Alfred is the first king to be mentioned by name in Sella and Yeatman's 1066 and all that. Up to this point... All they've mentioned is a bloke called the Venomous Bede and, quote, a wave of egg kings. So much for the glories of Northumbria or Penda or Offa. Anyway, Asa was a fan of Osbur's. She was the daughter of, quote, King Athelwulf's famous butler, Oslatch, sprung from the seed of Stoff and Whitgar, two brothers who received control over the Isle of Wight from their uncle, King Cherditch and Coonrich, his son. Oslatch is a man so famous that apparently no more was required to be spoken of him. Which is unfortunate, because no one else does mention him, and so we know nothing about him. Osbur herself was described by Asa as a most religious woman, noble in character and noble by birth. She and Athelwulf may or may not have been noble, but they were certainly productive. Osbur produced one daughter, Elswith, and five sons, which might be considered overproduction today, but not at that time, but all of whom, it turns out, were going to be needed anyway. So, in order, with the oldest first, their sons were Athelstan, Athelbald, Athelbert, Athelred, Alfred. Keep repeating them, and I'll test you later. Athelstan, Athelbald, 
Athelbert, Athelred, Alfred. You might be wondering, at this very moment, why there are so many Athels. This is because the prefix means noble, and royal folks consider this to be a suitable kind of prefix. So, why don't we run through them, or the ones I know, and see what they mean. So, Athelwolf, King, Dad, Noble Wolf, that's easy enough. Athelstan, Noble Ruler. Athelbald and Athelbert I am struggling with. Athelbert is cognate with Albert, as it happens, and combines the meanings noble and bright. And maybe Athelbald means noble receding a hairline. Ha, arf, arf, I know not. Athelred means noble counsel, and Alfred means wise counsellor. So there you go. Cogito ego sum, quis arat demonstrat, Brutus ate some yam. Now then, Athelwolf, the new king, the noble wolf. He does not get a very favourable write-up by the granddaddy of Anglo-Saxon history, Frank Stenton. He doesn't get a write-up at all by Seller and Yeatman, of course, so snaps for Frank, but here's what he says. Athelwolf seems to have been a religious and unambitious man for whom engagement in war and politics was an unwelcome consequence of rank. Such a judgment is comprehensible given some specific events later in the reign that we'll get onto, but really are way harsh, and have been very much re-evaluated recently. Athelwolf reigned for almost 20 years in increasingly dangerous and painful circumstances and laid the foundation for Wessex's struggle for survival that was to follow. Athelwolf's challenge was to rule a realm effectively despite the fact that it was made up of a number of kingdoms for whom independence was still a relatively recent state of mind. So the question was, how to bind these kingdoms together? The second was how to deal with the Viking threat all around him, in his fingers and in his toes. Aetherwolf's approach took both of these key questions into consideration, since they were linked. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Under the constant pressure of raids, his little empire needed flexibility and needed to make the most of its resources. 
His approach was similar in some ways to those adopted by Offa, to let sub-kings rule under his own lordship. So his son Athelstan was immediately made king of the eastern parts of his kingdom, specifically Kent, but possibly also Essex. But Aethelwulf did not then walk away. The charters that survive show he's very careful indeed to bind the local nobility to him. So his charters are issued from Kent, which means he takes care to physically visit and work those local relationships. Charters are attested by Kentish thanes and aldermen. It's a Kentish court, effectively, which maximises the involvement of the men of Kent and removes or at least minimises the impression of the heavy hand of Wessex. And in all of this, he would have been helped by the Vikings to a degree. The thanes and aldermen of Little Kent and Essex recognised the importance of the resources that Wessex could bring to the fight. The same applies to the traditional shires of Wessex. It is Aethelwulf that first centres his reign on Winchester, but like all Anglo-Saxon and indeed medieval kings, his court is peripatetic. It moves around constantly. Charters survive summoning his great men to all parts of Wessex, Wilton, Southampton, Eddington and Dorchester, as well as Winchester itself. Just as he had installed his eldest son Athelstan in the eastern part of his kingdom, so he installed his younger sons throughout other parts of Wessex, in particular in Devon, in a way that has echoes of the Norman marcher lords in days to come, powerful lordship with a reliable man there on the potentially dangerous borderland. So look, there are two features I want to draw out of this. Effectively, Athelwulf is very probably not thinking like a 21st century bloke. He's thinking like a medieval lord. These kingdoms are his property, at least in part, and they are a family business. So he's thinking about how his family will be involved when he's gone. He's careful to promote his eldest son Athelstan and prepare him for leadership. And like Offa and Egbert before him, he's clearly trying to avoid the lottery of a bidding war between Athelings. But equally, he's trying to make sure the younger sons had a future too. He does the same with the land he holds of his right rather than as a king, Urfe, in Old English. He makes sure that this land is divided between his sons, so they'll all have their own inheritance, whoever becomes king. And he might even have been thinking further of splitting the kingdom into a series of appanages for the royal kiddies. Essex, Sussex, Wessex, Kent, all have the potential to be used in this way. Meanwhile, though, the Viking raids were increasing. The problem is that we know almost nothing about Northumbria in the period and no one ever knows anything about East Anglia and they like it that way to this day. We know that the Danes appear for the first time for their first recorded reign, at least, in 835 to the Isle of Sheppey in the Thames estuary. After that we know of 12 more, but for sure there would have been more that are not recorded. We know that great destruction was done in Lindsay in the northeast, Mercia, Kent and East Anglia in 841. Southampton on the south coast was plundered in 842 and there were heathens in Mercia in 855. In 844, a Northumbrian king was killed in a major battle. But these will be the tip of the iceberg. Now, the problem with the Blessed Vikings was that you really did not know where they were going to pop up next. No one expects the Spanish Inquisition, no one expects a dragon boat to appear on your doorstep and the Vikings rarely brought soft cushions with them. So, defence had to be local as well as national. We have not talked much about how Anglo-Saxon England at the time was structured militarily, and I am not emotionally or intellectually prepared to do so at this moment. So, 
In essence, though, we are in principle in the days of the Anglo-Saxon freeman, the churl. Every man who can afford it can bear arms. Precious few can actually afford it, but in law we have a land filled with warriors who just happen to be farming at the moment. That is changing and will change, and at some point we'll have a debate about whether or not Anglo-Saxon England is basically a feudal society by the time the Normans arrive, but for the moment, the Anglo-Saxon leaders can call all the men of the Shire out to defend the Shire. This is described by the word third, militia, if you like. These men owe their allegiance formally to the king, yet of course it is the local thanes who will lead them, and it is most of all the aldermen who will lead the response to the Viking threat. The alderman is not like the medieval earl we are used to from Norman or indeed medieval times, though you'll think they are so close in practice that you will roll your eyes, shake your collective head and call me Mr Picky. The medieval earl was basically an honorific title awarded on a personal basis by the king to one of his men. The earl would need the wherewithal to keep up his status, but that was separately granted by and large, and his land, or his honour as it was called, would almost certainly be spread out across the country, and was held on, as I say, a personal basis. So, you might be Earl of Salisbury, for example, and have almost no land or power in Salisbury. You might just happen to like to be called the Earl of Salisbury. The alderman, on the other hand, was a public office. It was an office attached to a specific territory, the Shire. It gave the holder the rights to call out the third, and to be funded in their military efforts by the king. They are not personally providing military service in return for land, they are being paid to do a job. For sure, they'll take their personal household men with them, but for the most part they're serving a public office. So it's different, right? These men are actually more like sheriffs. So this relationship between Aethelwulf and his alderman was absolutely critical, and Aethelwulf is well aware of it, and he cultivated the relationship with care throughout his kingdom. It was a three-line defensive strategy, essentially. The local thane tried to hold the Viking raiders off. The alderman calls up the shire thanes and churls and tries to kick the Vikings out. Given the speed with which the Vikings can appear, pillage and go, even that may not be quick enough. But if the Vikings are particularly big, hairy and numerous, the local thanes and aldermen whimper like small girls and send word to the king. Well, send word to the king. I'm sure no Anglo-Saxon ever whimpered. Maybe the young boys did. So, for example, in 845, a Danish Viking fleet landed on the River Parrot down in Devon in southwest of England. They were met by the local aldermen with the levies of Dorset and Somerset, and the Vikings were put to flight. On this occasion, neither the king nor the whimpering was required. Now, I am saying very little about anywhere except Wessex, as I say, and I am sorry I hold up my hands in pain and supplication to the ghosts of the East Anglians and Mercians and Northumbrians. But we just don't have the information. But, sure as eggs is eggs, we can be sure that by the time we're in the 840s and 850s, the pressure from Viking raids, and larger and larger Viking raids at that, is growing. However, life did go on. And there's an interesting insight into the relationship between Wessex and the other Anglo-Saxon kingdoms, or at least with Mercia. Although I'm trying to get folks to recognise the strength of Aethelwulf's reign, given that he tends to lose out by being sandwiched in between Egbert and Alfred, it's equally clear that he doesn't establish any kind of hegemony over the Northumbrians or East Anglians. He's not a king of England. 
But with Mercia, it's very clear the balance of power has moved decisively from Mercia to Wessex. There are charters from Aethelwulf from disputed territories along the Thames, which makes it clear Mercia has retreated away from them. And then in 854, King Burgred of Mercia asks Aethelwulf for help against the pesky Welsh. So Mercia asks Wessex, not the other way around. After which, Aethelwulf gives his younger daughter to Burgred in marriage. The thing smacks, yes, of cooperation, but there's also a whiff of Mercian subservience. Nothing certain, just a whiff, even a whiffette maybe, a soupçon. Also, I have to say, it puts the Viking raids up to now into context. They are not yet all-consuming. It did get very close to that, though, when in 851 there was something of a crisis. Now, the size of the Danish armies were growing. Previously, they tended to be more isolated raids of the odd ship here, the odd ship there. But in 851, the Danes descended on Wessex in force. To guess at numbers, the easiest way is often calculating from the number of ships. Now, there are many things about the ship numbers. Exaggeration is one thing. And then, how many warriors could a ship carry? So you need to be aware of these two things as I warble on about numbers. It's all based on the slimmest of evidence and could all be tripe. Nonetheless, on occasion the chroniclers do mention numbers, not often, but sometimes. In the 830s then, Egbert fought 25 ships' companies. In 840, Alderman Wolfherd fought 37 ships' companies. If we guess that about 40 men could fit in a Viking warboat, that gives us armies of 1,000 to 1,500. Substantial. Not earth-shattering, but substantial. At one point in 851, Aethelwulf and his aldermen were fighting an army brought in 350 ships. That, my friends, is earth-shattering for these times. That is a lot of hair. And yet, in 851, Aethelwulf fought them to a standstill. His son Athelstan, King of Kent, met one contingent of Danes at sea off the southeast coast at Sandwich and beat the Vikings at their own game. Meanwhile, Aethelwulf and another of his sons, Aethelbald, met the Danes and, quote, There made the greatest carnage of a heathen army that we ever heard of, and they took the victory. All of this would have built Aethelwulf's prestige, but without doubt, the men of Wessex were worried. And Aethelwulf's reign ends in a rather remarkable few years and events. One of these has become known, slightly unhelpfully, as the Second Decimation of 855. This prompts the question, of course, of why I didn't speak of the First Decimation, and it's a good question, well asked. Well, our knowledge of the First Decimation is based on a series of copies of charters, none of them original. And while the churchmen who copied them out are, of course, honest men of God for the most part, when it came to creating documents to prove that all these lands and rights definitely belong to the church honest engine, they could tend to be the most outrageous liars and cheats. So, mostly, folks don't believe in the first decimation anymore. But in 855, there is an original charter that survives. In the decimation, therefore, Aethelwulf gave away 10% of all his lands to the church. And more than that, these lands were given free from all secular demands, such as taxation, for one. Wild! 
in the context of an existing concern that too much land was in church control, leading to argy-bargy between secular and ecclesiastical lords, and the grant of land we talked about earlier from the Archbishop of Canterbury, this is quite a giveaway. Why did he do it? Well, there are theories, ladies and gentlemen. Theories, because it's really hard to know. The generally accepted view is that it has to be something to do with the Viking scourge. It could have been a gift to God to ask for his aid to prove themselves worthy of being released from the scourge. More practically, it could have been effectively a tax cut to help the thanes of Wessex while they were being robbed by the Vikings. From the events that follow, I favour the pious plea for God's help. Personally, if I was a king facing such a challenge, taxes would have gone up to help the fight, not the other way around, but then I'm not terribly religious. What happened next was also slightly remarkable, though more comprehensible. In 855, Aethelwulf got in touch with the ruler of the western third of the empire that had split up after the death of Louis the Pious, a man called Charles the Bald. And he asked Charles for an escort through his lands to Rome. Aethelwulf's journey caused a stir, and not just in Wessex. The French and Italian chroniclers wrote of his progress and arrival in Rome with a multitude of people. There, Aethelwulf met the Pope, and Pope Benedict's biographer noted the glittering gifts that he brought. A fine gold crown weighing four pounds, one sword bound with fine gold, four silver gilt Saxon bowls, one all-silk white shirt with roundels with gold studding, two large gold interwoven veils, as well as lavish donations of gold and silver to the clergy, leading men and the people of Rome. Egg king he might have been, but don't write those Saxons off. Now with Aethelwulf was a small boy, his youngest son Alfred, just six years old. Amazingly, this was actually Alfred's second trip. He'd already been there in 853. But anyway, we're not allowed to talk about Alfred yet. So, Aethelwulf and his son stayed with the small community called the Scholar Saxonum in Rome. This was an area on Vatican Hill in Rome called locally the Borgo. An interesting word, Borgo, because at its root was the Saxon word burr or town. Because the origin of the Borgo was very probably Ina, the 8th century king of Wessex who'd given up the power of kingship in favour of worship of God or at least a fancy cruise to Rome. As he arrived, Aethelwulf would have found a church at the centre of the Borgo, surrounded by shops and inns. He'd have found it stuffed full of Anglo-Saxon pilgrims. As the Viking tide rose, the locals remarked that the Anglo-Saxon tide in Rome rose also, pilgrims, lords and ladies flying from the pagan scourge. Why did Aethelwulf go to see the Pope? Well, personal reasons probably did rank very high, very high indeed. The chance to see the most famous place in all Christendom. But there were no doubt more practical things too, or practical in a sense. Aethelwulf needed support, needed all the support he could get to stop his country from being overwhelmed by a maelstrom of fire and violence. The murdered men, women and children, the raped nuns, the desecrated churches, the vicious contempt of the alien invaders had to be stopped. He needed God's help. For who could be more mighty when fighting the devil himself? But on the way home, in 856, more business appeared. 
On the way home, he stayed with Charles the Bald, King of the Franks, for three months. He hunted and celebrated with the grandson of Charlemagne, and every day his prestige and reputation grew higher as a result. He fought with Charles on campaign against those Vikings who were also plaguing the Franks in Normandy. Hate it or loathe it, the Carolingians had prestige and glamour, and Aethelwulf wanted a bit of it. As it happens, he got more than that. Because in 856, Aethelwulf was married to Charles's daughter, Judith. What happened to Osbo, we do not know. Whether cast aside like a religious and noble oily rag, or whether she had simply died. Not sure what I'm hoping for her on her behalf of those unattractive options. But Judith, Judith was probably 13 years old. Aethelwulf must have been in his 50s, for sure. I mean, that is a bum rap, if ever there was a bum rap. Seriously, Grandad, have a heart. But no, matters of state and all, and after a magnificent ceremony, Aethelwulf and his new wife set off for home. The homecoming was a little like the homecoming Frodo, Sam, Merry and Pippin experienced in the book, not the film. While he was gone, the spirit of Saruman had moved in to Wessex and stirred the ambition of his son. As it happens, his eldest son, Athelstan, had already died, and so it was Aethelbold who had whispered in ears and muttered his plans and intrigues, because Aethelbold had been given temporary command of the kingdom while Aethelwulf was away, acting king, as it were, probationary period and all. And Aethelbold had decided hmm, that he liked the king thing and gathered together a few aldermen and bishops. Aethelwulf's response was pretty exceptional in that he agreed to divide the kingdom with Aethelbold holding on to the senior part of the relationship. So Aethelbold took Wessex and Aethelwolf Kent and the other eastern provinces. Now I can't think off the top of my head of too many other examples of monarchs willingly giving up power and territory to keep the peace. This is Cincinnatus stuff. Having said that, the truth of it was that Aethelwolf probably retained seniority and that in fact Aethelbold had only the very western parts of Wessex. But nonetheless, interesting stuff. Aethelwulf, though, died only two years later in 858 and was buried initially at Staining in West Sussex and then transferred to Winchester Cathedral, where his father is also buried. Excitingly, I'm told that if you go to Staining Church, you can see Aethelwulf's first tombstone. I'm not sure I should be finding this as exciting as I do, but I can't help it. That is a seriously old tombstone. Aethelwulf's will made provision for his kingdom and made provision for his children, the head and the heart. He divided his kingdom between his two eldest sons. Aethelbold, as eldest, got the senior part, Wessex. Aethelbert, the next in line, got the eastern provinces, Kent and Essex and Sussex. His two other sons, Aethelred and Alfred, as two pipsqueaks got diddly squat as far as official position was concerned, but they got a good payoff from Aethelwolf's personal lands. As I say, Head and heart. That, then, is Aethelwulf, a not inconsiderable king. A king who has gone from zero to hero in the last 50 years, from an impractical, overpious king to a leader who built the prestige and stability of his realm, managed to cope with having five sons, which I cannot imagine is easy, and did better than most in holding back the Viking tide. But, gentle listener, the dam is about to break. But we will need to wait until next time to hear about breaking dams. 
Before I go, let me commend the website to you, where I put a list of all those Viking raids, and amusingly and childishly, a scorecard of who won the most battles between the Vikings and the Anglo-Saxons in the 9th century. Puerile, but available. Next week, we will hear about the Michel Hera, the great heathen army that will rip Anglo-Saxon England apart. Until then, have fun. <laughs> <laughs>